and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Yet here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he, heard, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he asked his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks for reading, Cohen. and morning, everybody. It's good to be with you after a couple of Sundays away. Um, thanks for your prayers and care. Um, yes, our family's um, had COVID, at least 
Only half of us did, amazingly. Um, the girls and Jacob, the older girls and Jacob, didn't, didn't manage to catch it. Moya was quite disappointed. But um, our experience, I think, was very like others, um, just kind of heavy cold symptoms, but then ongoing fatigue, still feeling uh, a bit flat and run down, but uh, certainly on the mend. Uh, partly because of that, we have changed the preaching series rather than trying to get a, a new series um, up uh, for this Sunday beginning in Galatians. We've put that off and I'm going to preach a five-week series um, in Luke 15, particularly looking at that third parable that Jesus tells, often called the prodigal son. Uh, this is a series I preached back in 2016. Uh, I don't think many people here today would have heard it, and even if you did, that was six years ago, so uh, I'm suspecting you can't remember that much, but I think it was quite a significant um, series back then. Certainly, I very much enjoyed preaching it and looking forward to getting, to the, getting into this passage again. Let me, um, let me pray, and then we'll uh, dive in. This week is really an overview of uh, Luke 15 and the passage as a whole. But let me pray. At the start, this, these stories that really give us a, a wonderful window into your heart. We thank you for, for what we sang, that, that Jesus is a friend to, to sinners. Uh, that uh, we can find our home in your embrace. Can, we can rest in your unfading love. Uh, for us. Please, we pray uh, today and over the series, would you uh, correct our wrong thinking about you? Would you uh, soften our hearts to your unworldly love for us? Uh, would you teach us and remind us of uh, the truths about you and what it means to be your people, a community gripped by grace, shaped by your wonderful, amazing grace. We thank you for the presence of your spirit with us this morning. Uh, please, would he be our teacher. Amen. Well, to grasp what Jesus is saying in these stories, we need to see why he tells them. And the first two verses in Luke 15 uh, give us the context, give us the reason. So have a look again at chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear this, and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This is the context for the stories. The, the Pharisees are muttering. They're grumbling. They're upset. They're upset about the kind of people that Jesus is associating with, hanging around with. He welcomes sinners, they say. They complain. He eats with them. Now, eating with people is a sign of friendship, isn't it? Uh, it still is the case today, but even more so at Jesus' time. And the Pharisees' complaint is about the kind of people that Jesus keeps company with, the kind of people that he welcomes and befriends. And so Jesus, in response, tells these stories. And as I said, they give us a wonderful window into the heart of God. They tell us that God has a heart for the lost. They're about the grace of God, the grace of God to me as an individual, but also about how the grace of God forms a new kind of community. You see, Jesus is welcoming sinners. He's eating with them. It's a community activity, not just a private individual one-on-one -on -one relationship. Jesus is forming a new community. 
And if we really grasp what Jesus is teaching in these parables, it will pr profoundly affect not only our lives as individuals, but our life as a church community. Uh, I've called this series The Prodigal God and the Community of Grace. The Prodigal God and the Community of Grace. That word prodigal, we're familiar with it, but maybe we don't know what it means. It, it means to be recklessly extravagant. The third parable is often called the prodigal son because the younger son uses his inheritance in a reckless manner. But in Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, which I'm hugely indebted to in shaping this series, he makes the point that the parable is much more about the father and his reckless, extravagant love. When the truth of God's extravagant grace takes root in a group of people, it will produce a beautiful community of grace. And so as we go through the parable and draw out the different themes each week, we're going to think about how each theme applies to us as a community, how that truth might shape us in our relationships with one another and the people around us. This morning, just two headings to guide us through. Firstly, the kind of people Jesus welcomes and secondly, the kind of community Jesus forms. So firstly, the kind of people Jesus welcomes. Secondly, the kind of community Jesus forms. The first parable that he tells is about sheep. <clears throat> when many of us think about sheep, we probably <coughs> have in mind kind of cute, fluffy, white creature uh, walking through green pastures, drinking from still waters. That is not the image that the Bible wants us to have. When the Bible describes us as sheep, it's not a compliment. Sheep are stupid. Uh, my wife, Corin, uh, spent some time on a sheep station in Queensland during our gap year before university, and that time has permanently changed her opinion of sheep. She used to think they were fairly cute. She now thinks they are deeply frustrating, dumb animals. Just ask her. She'll roll her eyes and tell you how annoying they are. Sheep are stupid animals, and when they get lost, they need rescuing. They're not like a dog that will eventually find its way home. I'm told even when you find a lost sheep, you can't just call it and it will follow you home. No, you need to tie it up, put it on your back, and carry it all the way home. When Jesus describes us as lost sheep, he's saying that we're utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. We need a shepherd who will do everything to rescue us, to seek us out, to bring us home. And so Jesus tells these three stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. You see, the community that Jesus is forming is made up of people who are lost, people who are helpless, hopeless, people who need rescue. But what does it mean to be lost? Does it mean that God has misplaced us? No, not at all. The third parable, I think, helps us. It tells us that we're lost because of what we love. We're lost because of what we love. We love God's things more than we love God. At the beginning of that third story, the younger son asks his father for his share of the estate. He's asking for his inheritance now. Uh, in the culture of the day, the oldest child in a family would have received uh, in this family. When the father died, the older son would have got two-thirds of the 
uh, the estate, younger son would have got a third. That would have happened when the father died. And so when the younger son makes this request, he is effectively saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you would just get out of the way so that I can get my hands on your stuff. That's what I really want. You see, he loves the father's things more than he loves the father. It is an outrageous thing for a son to say to his father, especially in the culture of the day. But even more shocking is the way the father responds. He doesn't berate his son. He doesn't punish him. He doesn't kind of kick him out. No, he divides his property. You see, it wasn't that the father just had a, a pot of money in the bank and he could just take out the younger son's share and give that to him. No, for him to meet this request, he would have had to sell off land. His, his property, his, his wealth was tied up in his property, in his assets. For him to give the son his inheritance would have meant selling off land. And yet he does it. He divides his property. He, he faces the shame and insult that it would have caused in the community. He watches his family torn apart. And more on that in future weeks. The younger son gets the stuff he wants and he heads off. And we're told he squanders his wealth in wild living and then ends up feeding the pigs. This younger son is clearly lost, isn't he? He's a sinner. We all recognize him as a sinner. He treats his father terribly. And we can surmise he's, he's guilty of greed and drunkenness, wild living. His brother assumes he's been sleeping with prostitutes. That may well be true. He is outwardly sinful. He's, he breaks the rules. He's immoral. But can you see that all those outward sins flow from his heart? At heart, he's lost because of what he loves. He loves the father's stuff more than he loves the father. But what about the older son? Did it strike you, as Corin read through the passage, how the, the story could so easily have finished at verse 21? The son comes back. Let's throw a party. This son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. That's how the other stories finish, don't they, with a, a celebration. But the third story carries on and we're told about the older son. What about him? At the end of the story, the younger sons come home. The father's throwing this party. But verse 28 tells us the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with, with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's angry, isn't he? Why is he so angry? What does the older brother care about? Can you see it in the things that he says? What does he care about? The father's stuff. Isn't that right? He complains. He's been slaving away but never got what he deserved. He's angry that the father is wasting the fattened calf on this reprobate son. The father's wasting his inheritance. You know, when the son, younger son took his share, the older son would inherit everything that was left. And now the father's using that inheritance to throw this party. And the older brother is enraged. 
This is the greatest day of the father's life. Anyone can see that. He's throwing the party of his life because the son he thought was dead is alive and back in the family. This is the greatest day of the father's life. But the older brother doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about his brother. He doesn't care about his father. The father was only ever a means to an end. He only really cares about his inheritance. And so can you see that the older son is lost as well. This isn't just a story of one lost son, but two. And the older son is lost because of what he loves. They both love the father's things more than they loved the father. The younger son is greedy, drunk, immoral, and those things flow from his heart because of what he loves. The older son is angry, rude, proud, and those things flow from his heart, what he loves. And so this is our understanding of sin, doesn't it? Both sons are lost. The younger son is lost in his badness. He rejects the father. He's blatantly pursuing worldly immorality. The older son is lost in his goodness. He keeps all the rules. He's outwardly respectable, but he's not doing that because he loves the father. The father is just a means to an end. Both sons are lost. And the real sting in the tale at the end of the story is, where's the older son? At the end of the story, the older son is outside the celebration, still outside the home. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. And which of the sons are they most like? They're angry, aren't they? They're, they're proud. They're complaining because Jesus is having parties with sinners. So Jesus tells these stories. God's heart is for the lost, he says. I've come to rescue sinners. I'm forming a community of lost people. And the Pharisees, like the older brother, are on the outside. Not because they don't need rescuing, but because they won't admit that they do. Jesus is forming a community of lost people. And the only criteria for entry is knowing that you're lost and coming to Jesus for rescue. Jesus is appealing to these Pharisees to admit their need, their lostness, and come to him in repentance. So what kind of people does Jesus welcome? Well, he welcomes the lost. He's come to rescue sinners. Like the lost sheep, like the lost sons, we are utterly helpless. We need a shepherd who will do everything for us. You see, other religions treat you like a dog. They give you rules to follow so that you can get your own way home. But we need... Well, the gospel says we're sheep. We're sheep. We're helpless. We need a rescuer. We need a shepherd who will seek us out, pick us up, and carry us all the way home. And the good news is that Jesus is that shepherd. He's the shepherd who comes to seek us out and save us. The shepherd who lays down his life to rescue us because he loves us. Because he loves us. Now, Jesus tells this parable, the first one, the parable of the lost sheep, as if the shepherd's actions are obvious. 
He says, doesn't he, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, loses one of them, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And I think the answer to that question is actually no. I mean, that would involve a huge risk, leaving the 99 sheep. They might get attacked. They might run off. I, I don't know if this is right, but I reckon, actually, most shepherds would cut their losses. They'd abandon the one lost sheep to its fate. Can't go taking that kind of risk. And if they do go, they'd go grumbling. And if they find it, they complain. Come on, you stupid sheep. Look what you've gone and done. And when they get home, they don't throw a party. If they talk to their neighbors at all, they'd say, you'll never guess what my dumb sheep has done. Had to spend the whole day looking for it. Isn't that how some of us think about God? That he would be that kind of shepherd. Frustrated at our stupidity. Annoyed at the burden that we are to him. Reluctant in the care and help that he gives us. I think that's how many of us naturally think about God because that's how we would be. And that's why we need a Bible to correct our false image of what God is like. Dane Ortland says, It is normal and natural to sense instinctively that Jesus is holding his people at arm's length. But the testimony of the entire Bible is that God defies what we instinctively feel by embracing his people in their mess. In your sinfulness, he draws near to you. It's not only that he's not repelled by your fallenness. He finds your need and emptiness and sorrow irresistible. There is profound truth in what he writes there. It's not just that Jesus is not repelled by our lostness, by our sinfulness, by our fallenness. He's drawn to it. He finds our need and emptiness irresistible. Just look at the shepherd in the parable Jesus tells. He, he willingly takes the risk and bears the cost. He joyfully seeks us out. He delights to bring us home. Jesus lo loves us in our lostness. He's forming a community of lost people. Secondly, more briefly, what, what does that community look like? What kind of community is Jesus forming? Three things. This community will be characterized by unity, humility, and joy. It's a community of people gripped by grace, a community of people whose identity has been radically transformed by their experience of God's grace. And so firstly, unity. You know when people share a common experience, it kind of binds them together. You know when you um, maybe meet people at a party and you get talking and you're kind of searching for common ground. And when you find it, it's a bit of a relief and you, ah, you know, they went to the same school, they grew up in the same area, we've got the same interests. And there's a bit of a bond uh, between you. You share the same story, there's a connection. And the more profound the shared experience, the stronger the bond. Think of war veterans. They've been through such a life-shaping experience. They often find, war veterans, that they have an immediate bond with one another. People who've 
shared that same profound experience. When you've got a bond like that, it, uh, you know, other identities become less important. It doesn't matter what football team you barrack for or which way you vote. It doesn't matter which town you grow, grew up in or which school you went to. You've got such an intense bond as a war veteran uh, you can be united even across those other dividing lines. The community that Jesus forms is made up of people who've been through the most profound experience. People who've been rescued at the most extreme cost. People who've been brought from death to life. People who were utterly lost yet utterly loved. You see, the experience that we share as Christian people is one that transcends every other identity. In Colossians, Paul says, because of our identity in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. All those other categories don't count anymore because you're united in Christ. And so the church is to be a community of wonderful diversity yet profound unity. It's the only community in the world where you find people of all races and cultures and classes and colors living together in unity. Black and white, Israeli, Palestinian, male, female, young and old, rich and poor. Wonderful diversity, yet profound unity. And so, you know, imagine an experiment and uh, you parachute me into the Amazonian jungle to meet an elderly Christian tribeswoman and assuming we can communicate with each other, give us 10 minutes to get talking about Jesus and we'll share that bond. The differences between us don't matter because we've been through the same death to life experience. We've been rescued by the same shepherds. We follow the same Lord. We're filled with the same spirit. We have the same Father. So the community Jesus is forming should be characterized by a profound unity. And I want to say, if you come to Barney's and you feel like you don't fit in, there aren't many others like you, please stay. Because we need you, and maybe you need us, to be who we're called to be. A community, a church of beautiful, unified diversity. Secondly, more briefly, the community Jesus is forming will be characterized by humility. See, when your identity is based on an experience of God's grace, you'll be humble. Other identities that we have are, are different. If your fundamental identity is that you're successful in your career, or you're a, you're a good parent, or you're a Bible-believing, mature, hard-working Christian, you know, those... Those identities will give you a sense of joy, make you feel good about yourself. But it's a joy that automatically makes you feel superior to other people. So you feel superior to the people who aren't successful or whose families are messed up or who aren't mature in their faith as you are. Those kind of identities based in our performance, our achievements, they automatically exclude tax collectors and sinners. But if your fundamental identity is in the fact that you've been saved by God's sheer grace, that you were utterly lost, yet you're utterly loved, if that's where your identity is found, then you can't feel superior to 
people whose lives are messy because you're no better. Membership of Jesus community is not a merit-based community. Your identity is not in your performance or achievements. All are lost and all are welcome. It's a place where you can be honest about your brokenness, where you can admit your failures. So there'll be a beautiful humility. Thirdly, the community Jesus is forming will be characterized by joy, by festivity, by celebration. All three stories have this rejoicing and celebration at the end, don't they? We're told there's a party in heaven every time someone repents. And the church is to be a community characterized by joy. Again, we lose our joy when we focus on other identities. When we think about ourselves as primarily, um, I'm someone who's single and I wish I was married. I'm, I'm sick and I'm struggling with my health. I'm childless and I wish I wasn't. I'm, I'm tired. I'm neglected. I'm unappreciated. Focus on those things and you'll lose your joy. We need to preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves and each other, to remind ourselves of our most fundamental identities. We are saved. We are saved. We are forgiven and adopted and loved. And we're never alone and we're headed for glory. Let me give you five truths to get you out of bed every morning. You can remember them on your hands. You may have seen this before. God the Father loves me. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. All things work together for my good. I'm on my way to glory. God the Father loves me. Jesus died for me. The Spirit lives in me. All things work for my good. I'm on my way to glory. Focus on those things, those identities. You know, I'm, I'm loved by the Father. I'm rescued by the Son. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm, I'm secure in God's sovereign care. I'm, I'm headed for certain glory. Focus on those. Let, let your self-talk be permeated with the gospel. The joy will come. In ourselves, we're all lost. We're lost because of what we love. But Jesus has come to rescue the lost. He's forming a community of lost people. He's drawn to us in our lostness. And he's opening his arms to welcome us in. It'll be a community characterized by unity and humility and joy. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that the truth of these stories would sink deep into our souls. That we would know and have the freedom to acknowledge that, that we are in ourselves lost, utterly helpless. Would you remind us and reinforce in us by your spirit the truth that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost and he, he does that not reluctantly but willingly, lovingly, even joyfully. Please would you make us a community gripped by your grace characterized by profound unity and humility and joy. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.